Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me this week is Phoebe Watson. Hello! To start us off for this episode, I think we should maybe give a little bit of background about what we were, or rather were not doing last weekend before recording this, which is that we were staring at our social media and wishing that we were part of an event that was happening in Texas, in Waco, Texas, hosted by the wonderful women who run the Fountains of Carrots podcast, Haley Stewart and Christy Isinger. They hosted the Raspberry Cordial Catholic Literary Gathering, in which just a lot of people got together and they chose a theme of Anne of Green Gables. I mean, we came very close to buying tickets to Texas for that. I feel like I had to break your heart when I pointed out that that might not be entirely practical for us. (laughs) I mean, it really wouldn't have been practical, sadly. (laughs) But when you heard it was Anne of Green Gables... Oh, my heart... (laughs) Yeah, no, it looked like a really great event. And I so we certainly haven't ruled out going to one in the future. Uh, yeah, but, I think we just have to book it like just a little bit more in advance. Yeah. But it looked like a wonderful event and I think they're going to be sharing at least some of the talks in, on their Patreon and hopefully we can get a little glimpse of what was going on because we were definitely very sad not to be there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, particularly because I think Anne of Green Gables is a story that is very close to Phoebe's heart. I mean, I think I have talked about it on the podcast before. Uh, a couple of Many times. Many times. <laughs> <laughs> I think that you had it in the very first episode we did where we introduced ourselves with the books that kind of most defined us. Yeah. I mean, didn't you just say it's very me? Yes, it's entirely very you. Yeah. And I'm a little bit later to the Anne of Green Gables. I mean, I have made you read the first one. Yes. And now, the one that we're talking about. Yeah, so when we heard that this event was happening and we realised we couldn't go, we thought, what's the next best thing to do? And we figured it was to do our own Anne of Green Gables themed episode in sort of solidarity with the event. But unfortunately, we're not quite going with the happiness of it this time. No. We have talked about Anne of Green Gables, the first book before. That was in the Sanctity of the Small? Yes. But we decided to see if we could come up with a slightly different angle, something maybe people haven't heard of before. And when I was looking at my calendar for the dates for when these are coming out, I realised this was coming out in November. And we realised it would also be very appropriate and and fitting to do an episode that was centred on particularly World War One, but obviously all of November is remembering the dead. And then within that, we have the 11th, which was traditionally Armistice Day. And uh, we have Remembrance Day, Remembrance Sunday, where we pray for and remember the fallen in the various major conflicts, particularly World War One and World War Two. So I said, why don't we talk about the last book of Anne of Green Gables, which is called Wheel of Ingleside. And it's about Anne grown up with her children they're in their teen like the youngest of them is a teenager and it's 1914. Yeah in some ways I remember when you told me that it's it sort of blew my mind I mean obviously it makes sense if I sat down and worked out the timeline for myself I would have realized it but it feels like having read Anne of Green Gables it feels like that world is a million miles away from World War One. Yeah, and then we just looked at the publishing dates. Yeah. And we were able to go, oh no, that's like 
that, when they were written. <laughs> yeah, that that world was coming into to clash with with the world of Anne of Green Gables. So I don't know if there are any really diehard fans of Anne of Green Gables. They might be a little bit horrified to learn that in this process, I've now read Anne of Green Gables, which is the first book, and now Rilla of Ingleside, which is the last book, and none of the books in between. <laughs> I did grant her permission to do this and reassure her that it doesn't really ruin the rest of the story. No, and I didn't feel that anyway. I, I did feel like, in fact, it took me a little bit of time to, to get to grips with all of these new characters because it didn't feel like, it did feel like almost a whole separate story. Yeah. Uh, and I certainly don't feel like I'm... I, having read it, I, I don't feel like I'm inhibited to going back to the books in between. I definitely think it in some ways does stand on its own, at least to a certain degree. And uh, it was honestly really wonderful. I I was really taken with it. I've I've always been kind of fascinated with World War One and that era. And I think the thing that I find most interesting about it is this reality that was the end of one world and one state of thinking about the world coming crashing down in this really truly brutal and unrelenting way of this four-year war that nobody kind of knew what to do with. Also just the fact that personally for me a huge portion of my favourite authors all came out of World War One, and I think I've always been really fascinated to find out what it was that led them to tell the stories that they told and I think in some ways that's why World War One captures my imagination so much. But yeah, so I was really excited to have this perspective and for that reason, actually, I don't want to say I prefer Rilla of Ingleside to Anna Green Gables because I am... That might be heresy. It might be heresy and I think people might actually come for me. <laughs> but it certainly spoke to a very particular area of my own interests in a, in a way that I was very excited to read about and I, I loved it. I was racing through it and I haven't been racing through books recently, so... I mean, they are also very different books yeah. even like I would say if I read Anne of Green Gables in public I will be seriously struggling not to laugh aloud mm -hmm. I was reading Wheel of Ingleside on the plane and got caught crying by my colleague <laughs> because of where I'd got to yeah, it's not a very bleak book. I think it's a good, happy medium. We were saying before this that as much as I wanted to do an episode on World War One, and I have my World War One poets up here, and I have a lot of areas of literature that I would be very excited to dive into, but from your perspective, Phoebe, that's not necessarily something that you feel entirely comfortable with. No. We know my tolerance for violence at this stage. Yeah, if you listen to our episode on violent films and Catholic audiences, you'll know that Phoebe kind of comes down on the gentler side of entertainment. <laughs> yeah, I think for me the important thing about Real of Ingleside, it's not just a book that I'm glad I read once, but a book that I can keep going back to. Yeah, it definitely... So it does have a really hard emotional punch. It does feel very realistic. It doesn't couch things and make it all nice and fluffy. But at the same time, and, and what we're going to be talking about is this home front and, and what it means to be at home and watch your family go and fight and, and see your world change, but not actually be part of that change in a way. So obviously you're not necessarily getting lots of details of the trenches and the and the shells and Yeah, the, you're not getting the gory details so much as the emotional pain. Yeah, and so in some ways I think that was why it felt like such a happy medium for something for us to be talking about because it is taking the era seriously. Obviously it was written by Lucy Maud Montgomery who lived through it. So of course she was taking it seriously. 
but it's less about the kind of shock value of how horrific it was to be in those situations. Um, I have, while Phoebe was reading it, she was saying how much she would love to know more about the politics of the era and what led to World War One and what was happening and who was doing what where. So I have convinced her, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but there is a great podcast series called Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. And he does a five part, I think five or six part series on World War One called Blueprint for Armageddon. Each of the episodes is about three hours long. So it's really monumental. But he goes into all of the details. He does a really good job of balancing between the big picture and what led to this and the background elements and the particular players in terms of the hierarchies of the different leaders of the different countries and even the different armies but and combining that with the nitty-gritty details of what it's like to be on the ground Um, yeah he does a really really good job i just finished listening to the first episode Mm -hmm. i will say my poor heart (laughs) more because of the tension of it rather than the actual nitty-gritty but it is really really good and for me it's actually really interesting i went back flicking through Wheel of Ingleside, having got a little bit more of that context of where the war is coming from. And even that was kind of just opening my eyes out. Yeah, for Mm. sure. I've been listening to an episode ahead for Phoebe to check where it starts getting more and more grim because certainly certainly the later episodes, if you do, like a content warning, if you do struggle with graphic descriptions, genuinely be very careful about listening to it. It is very... Weren't you saying that you couldn't listen to it while eating lunch? Yeah, uh, yeah. there was one lunchtime I was listening to it and I'm like, I'm just going to pause this for a minute. <laughs> um, but in terms of giving you, particularly like that first episode, I think it, yeah. the first episode is very accessible for a lot of listeners and it does a good job of setting the scene. Yeah, it kind of maps out this maze of conflicts in a way that you can not only see the bigger picture but you can translate it into what it means from before. I think we'll probably talk about that a bit. Yeah. And what it means in our context now. Like yeah. kind of giving you sizes of guns or comparative sizes of armies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, really good. And I think that's one of the reasons why I thought it was so good for Phoebe to listen to it. Because in some ways, this move from one era to another is at the very crux of what we're talking about. And as we've kind of touched on before, it's like... The idyllic world of Anne of Green Gables encounters the world of World War One, which was the lived experience for a lot of people, you know, for most people a very rural life, and then to suddenly be confronted with the widespread mechanised horror of World War One. Yeah, I think also what really took me by surprise was how suddenly it came. Yeah. You're looking at kind of the space of a month, that maybe the politics behind this has been building up a bit longer, but for the people who are just on the ground... Mm-hmm. it's like three days and they're at war. Yeah, exactly. There's a very quick turnaround. Yeah, And it's funny how it happens in so many ways, this move from one era to another, that it happens both in terms of a landscape of like how much mechanism has to go into it, but also just in terms of an emotional state. Or in the Hardcore History podcast, they're talking about how initially people were going to war in these old uniforms that just don't make any sense anymore. They're bright red and they have white gloves and they just look like walking targets. That like Yeah, that's the going into... In worn uniforms that look like they're from the Napoleonic era. Yeah, exactly. That there's this sense that people are still trying to live in a world that doesn't exist anymore. And I think you also see how that's very true of the armies and the battle style at the beginning of the war. Yeah. And even in Rilla Vingleside of what they expect from this war Mm -hmm. and how completely shocked they are. 
Yeah, it really subverts all expectations about what this is going to be like. And so I guess to give an overview of the story of Rilla of Ingleside, what we're going to be mainly talking about is the family dynamic and what it means to be courageous, whether you're going to war, whether you're staying behind, what it means to do your duty in that kind of context, and what it means to bear up and to embrace suffering that in some ways is unavoidable, like what it means to take up your cross, as we would say, from a Christian point of view. But do we want to just give like a, a brief overview? Like we said, obviously, Rilla of Ingleside is the last book of the Anna Green Gable series, so there are some spoilers, I guess, of the Anne story within it. Well, I mean, if you don't figure out that Anne eventually marries Gilbert. Yes, it's gonna, that's gonna take you by surprise. <laughs> I can't say that I was surprised. <laughs> so obviously there are some surprises in it, which we're going to try and avoid giving away straight out. I wouldn't say it's that much of a kind of spoilery story in some ways. One of the things I like about it is that it's a very traditional story and in some ways it goes in directions that you expect it to go, but it's more about the delivery and when it happens and how it happens and people's reactions to it that are surprising and engrossing. So we are going to touch on some points which I think some people would consider spoilers. We have some quotes that we're going to adapt slightly just so that it, it doesn't give away the exact context of when they're said. Yeah, we're going to do our best, but if you're one of those people that really doesn't like a book spoiled for them, maybe go and read the whole set of Anne of Green Gables and then come back. <laughs> but for the most part, like I said, I don't think what we're going to be talking about would really ruin the experience of reading it. Yeah, I think so. So the overview of the story is that at this point, like uh, Phoebe said, Anne is, has been married for many years. She's living at home with her five children. And the eldest of which is 21. That'll give you a little bit of context. Is And the youngest is just turning 15, yeah. isn't she? Yeah, and they have their cats and their dog and their housekeeper, Susan and a friend who's a teacher yeah. who's living with them and so there's kind of like a, a big collection of people in this house and it opens with a dance and it's all that kind of classic fairy tale type world of beauty and hope and joy and idyllic landscapes mm -hmm. and obviously then coming crashing like a giant wrecking ball into the middle of this is the announcement of world war one and the expectation that the boys of the all of the boys of the village would sign up to go to war. Yeah, I think for me it was fascinating that you've got one of the other girls in the village saying, "How can a war in Europe affect us?" Mm. Whereas you have one of Anne's sons raring to go to war and saying, "Well, of course, if England goes to war, Canada will go too. It's a family affair, and we'll all chip in." Yeah, and to him it is this grand adventure. But there is also this sense of duty that this is the right thing to do. Yeah, exactly. And the story centres on Rilla, who is the, the youngest daughter, and she's just beginning her full teenage years. And it, it does set it up that these are meant to be years of joy and the sort of golden years of youth and she's a very uh, we were saying in some ways she's very like Anne in, in other ways she's <laughs> not she does not have a lot of um, ambitions in life she's very happy to be the the pretty popular well-liked girl who doesn't really go off to college or doesn't make a big go of of an ambitious life in some ways it opens with a with a great quote which I think is is so very Anne and yet also not Anne Mm -hmm. uh, she says, I'm quite willing to be a dunce if I can be a pretty, popular, delightful one. 
I can't be clever. I have no talent at all, and you can't imagine how comfortable it is. Nobody expects me to do anything, so I'm never pestered to do it. I can't be a housewifely, cooly creature either. I hate sewing and dusting, and when Susan couldn't teach me to make biscuits, nobody could. Father says I toil not, neither do I spin. Therefore, I must be a lily of the field. And I mean, this is from Anne who says, I'd rather be pretty than clever. Exactly. So in in a certain sense, Rila is everything Anne as a child would have wanted to be. Yeah, she is that pretty popular, she's, you know, excited for dances and falling in love, and this is her whole world at the time, which, I mean, as a 15-year-old, is not a terrible thing. No. But she is described as uh, as being quite frivolous. And, and vain. And vain, and maybe a bit lazy in terms of, you know, cultivating her skills and, and all of those aspects. She's just happy where she is. She can't be taught to make biscuits because she doesn't want to be able to make biscuits. Exactly. And... So we see the war essentially through her eyes. And she obviously is remains with her family. But throughout the war, she has to support her family members going to war. She has to step up to the plate in terms of serving her family. But not only that, all of the women at the time typically would have contributed to the, the Red Cross and fundraising for the war effort and knitting socks and contributing to their community so that, you know, the lack of men wasn't such a burden on people. Yeah, at one point she's she's not strong enough to help get the harvest in like some of the other women are doing. So she's going to serve in the shop so that the shop assistant can go and help. And her father asks, will she enjoy doing that? And she goes, I don't expect so. But I've done so many things I don't like since the beginning of this war. Yeah. And it's a really lovely journey to see someone cultivate. One of the biggest parts is that she ends up taking care of this sort of abandoned baby, which it takes her a good third of the book to learn to even like in any capacity. (laughs) I know. Though even before that, she does say, I can't love him, but I can be proud of him. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So even while she's struggling to like this baby who's become... A massive burden on her. I mean, he's it's a two-week-old, very sickly baby mm-hmm. that she, as a 15-year-old, is suddenly taking full care of because yeah. her father puts his foot down and won't let anybody else really help with her. Like, if she's going to sign up for this, this has to be her kind of kingdom in some ways. So it, that's the centre of the story. And obviously, around her is happening something a bit more dramatic, which is that her her brothers are engaging with the war and deciding whether or not to go or finding out what they're going to be doing and so obviously it's a world war one story i don't think it gives too much away to say not everyone has a happy ending no i don't think it gives too much away to say that at least more than one of her brothers signs up for the war either. yes and also because she has she has a, a boy she has a crush on and is constantly wondering back and forth whether she is in fact engaged <laughs> really funny and he also has to he, he's injured and, and there's a lot of questions about his war contribution as I mean well. he's essentially moping that he can't go to war because the ankle isn't strong enough yeah until he can go so what we're going to do is take a look at I think will we take it maybe even character by character yeah and look at how they individually deal with this situation and what we were discussing is relevant to us as readers is that it can seem that deciding whether or not to go to war or enduring in the middle of a four-year war when so many people you love are in constant danger maybe doesn't necessarily feel incredibly relevant to our day-to-day lives and please god it will continue to be that way I'm sure there are many people in the world who are experiencing that right now. But that the thing that really sets up the novel is that the family in which we're looking at 
is particularly primed for this war because they are they have always cultivated virtue. We see other families and people in the village who have to deal with the fact that they are struggling with their own um, failings and shortcomings while grappling with something that's very serious and big. And so, um, I mean, not that the Blythe family is perfect. Certainly but... not. Well, and that's it because Rilla yeah. also has to grow up as well, and all of them kind of have to adapt and change. But that. You know, virtue doesn't come overnight just at the moment you hear the the call of war. You do have to cultivate it your whole life and cultivate it within your family. And with that, should we start with Anne? Yes, we'll start with Anne. Yeah, so this is going back to Anne of Green Gables, the book itself. And we were talking about how the two tie together, particularly how Anne, in being raised to virtue herself and stepping up to the plate, has also embedded that in her children that she's brought them up to not be afraid to do their duty. There's a beautiful moment near the end of Anne of Green Gables, it doesn't spoil anything, but Anne has received this awful shock and all of her plans are being turned upside down. Or rather, they're not. She could continue to go on with what she wanted to do, what she spent more than a year working towards and driving towards, but she chooses to give that up and to give that out of, out, out of love and with courage. And it says, She had looked her duty courageously in the face and found it a friend, as duty ever is when we meet it frankly. That's a beautiful concept of the friendship of duty, that it it gives you back something when you give in to duty. Yeah, you think you're losing, but you also gain. Yeah. And and so obviously we see that really flourishing with Anne in the in the story Rilla of Ingleside. I think what Rilla of Ingleside does so well is give a very important perspective on the war, which is the women's perspective. And now don't get me wrong, particularly in continental Europe, there were plenty of women who served in a variety of ways directly. So either through nurses or even uh, transmitting messages and working near front lines and all of those things. I'm, I'm definitely not trying to discount their experiences. They saw, I know... I mean, some of the characters in Real Love Ingleside do go as nurses. Yeah, and there's that famous British poet and writer Vera Britton whose story The Testament of Youth is quite famous uh, where she describes the death of, again, the, the men around her. But she, at first, was just stuck in England and then eventually went to, to be to be a nurse and she, she described it as the tutelage of horror and death. Um, so it's not that the the experience of the front line was something that women, no woman had, but that for the for the most part, women's experiences were to give up the people that they loved for this cause and to keep going and to remain strong. And I, I think that's a beautiful perspective to sit with. What does it really say? She has this quote which is very central to the whole novel and it's central to Rilla's own experiences and what she decides to do with her life. And the quote is, What was it mother had said, looking with her white lips and stricken eyes as Rilla had never seen her mother look before. When our women fail in courage, shall our men be fearless still? And that quote is at the heart of the story, which I think is, it's it's such an interesting way of looking at it because it sort of shows how the underlying courage of the people, and obviously the, it wasn't just women who stayed behind as well, there were, the, there were men and children, uh, but that feeling that you have to have this base of courage from which to go out from. Yeah. And just falling back on that sacrifice point, at one point, Anne says, we must not add to the bitterness of his sacrifice. And then Wheeler says, our sacrifice is greater than his. 
Our boys give only themselves. We give them. And I think we've discussed this a little bit before. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but that there's a sense that in the in the passion and the crucifixion of Christ, we're not trying to say that obviously that there was any greater suffering than Christ in that moment. Of course, that was the greatest suffering, and of course, and of of course, it seems obvious that being in the trenches is harder than not being in the yeah. trenches. But that there is a, a peculiar kind of agony that comes from having to allow the people you love to go and do that, and to not have the ability to take it on yourself but only the ability to let them go that there's a, an incredible loneliness and sense of inaction and a sense of helplessness in that moment and so like the the idea of our lady watching christ as he's being crucified and through the passion fulton sheen actually has a <laughs> your favorite has a great quote on this it, it's uh, from a sermon called mary and christ suffering he says mary's participation in christ's suffering began with the annunciation when she was asked to give god a human body more properly, a human nature. In other words, will you make God capable of suffering? God, though he was, learned obedience in the school of suffering. God could know experimentally what suffering was only by taking a body. So the Blessed Mother is asked, will you make it possible for your creator to suffer? Think of a mother, for example, who gave to a young son or daughter an automobile at the age of 19, which a short time afterwards is the cause of a wreck and permanent injury. Would the mother ever forgive herself? And here Mary has to say, yes, I will let him suffer. That's beautiful. It is a really profound perspective on suffering and one that is is hard to articulate. Yeah. Because, of course, you never want to take away from the direct suffering that someone goes through but that there is a peculiar calling to courage that we have. And I think in some ways it's often a very relatable one. Like any time that parents, but anyone who's a carer who has to walk with someone. We, we mentioned obviously that World War One is extremely complicated and its political ramifications and its political causes are very complex. And there is, for me, one of the fascinating things about it is, is that there's no real sense of triumph because one side is complexly right and the other side is complexly wrong but maybe we're not having the right perspective and it's not the kind of triumphant battle of good versus evil that you would want it to be yeah and and so there can be questions of was it right to go to war should we have been sending these boys to war and I find that question really interesting but in some ways because we're just looking at it from the book's perspective we're putting that to one side and saying from the perspective of the characters in these books it was the right thing to go and do yeah I find it really fascinating to see how much it really is the right thing to them. Mm -hmm. And even one of the boys, when he gets to the trenches, he still sees that. Like, he's in the midst of that horror, and he says that there is something evil here that has to be destroyed, and we will create a new world for the children of tomorrow through this. Yeah, but that to not be shied by how extreme the suffering is going to be. Yeah. I know when one of the boys goes and says, I'm determined that I will send my boy off tomorrow with a smile. He shall not carry away with him the remembrance of a weak mother who had not the courage to send when he had the courage to go. I hope none of us will cry. Yeah, and you really see that in that scene when the kind of crowd around them are saying, oh, the Blythes are taking this very lightly. Mm -hmm. And yet, yeah, they have the courage to hold back their own emotion for the sake of those going, which is a peculiar type of courage. Yeah. And I think it's, yeah, it's a really interesting theme throughout the whole book. 
Yeah, it's definitely one that I think is feels a bit foreign to modern readers in some ways. It really highlights how at the time, and I think it's still relevant now, but we don't necessarily see it that way, due to actually, uh, in large part, due to the soldiers who came back from, from these wars and, and did not have the social capacity to express what they went through in some ways and, and had to live in silence. We've developed a much more openness to talking about our feelings, which is obviously a good thing. In these situations, it's good to talk to the people you love and get support. But there is, to a certain extent, also a good that we've lost through that a pendulum swing between the two of them, which is that sense of restraint and that it's not always the right thing to burn burden those around us with the feelings that we're feeling in that exact moment. Yeah, I think it's also that kind of privacy of emotion. Yeah. That those going know how hard it will be for those they're leaving behind. Mm -hmm. So it's not that they don't know the emotion is there, but that it's restrained for their sake. Yeah, and that the families being left behind are not trying to burden them with, like she was saying, like memories of them sobbing and memories of them like tugging at them saying, please don't go. Trying to ease that sense of conflict that they have because because they believe they're going to do the right thing. And so it's this question of how can you facilitate the people in your life to do the right thing, even when it hurts you to have them do it. Yeah, that's such a like powerful, resounding theme. But yeah, it's such a hard thing to do. Yeah. And then, like you were saying, if we move from Anne maybe to the boy's perspective, her sons who go, all the characters that we kind of sit with, there's also neighbours and like people that they grew up with. Obviously, it's not just the, the Blythe's children, but that they kind of all go with different feelings in their heart and different emotions, but they don't get discouraged at how hard it is that, like you were saying, there's this sense of doing the right thing. And one of the sons, Walter, I think it's not exactly a spoiler to say that he takes a long time to sit with his decision and he gets called a coward. And that was a real, really pressing thing at the time that there was a lot of people pressuring people to go as well, whether or not they had maybe good reasons for staying behind. But he gets the, the white feather in the post, which was this mark of cowardice. And he Such says... a heartbreaking moment. Yeah, and he writes a letter to Rilla saying, I deserved it, Rilla. I felt that I ought to put it on and wear it, proclaiming myself to all Redmond, the coward I know I am. The boys of my year are going, going. Every day, two or three of them join up. Some days I almost make up my mind to do it. Then I see myself thrusting a bayonet through another man, some woman's husband or sweetheart or son, perhaps the father of little children. I see myself lying alone, torn and mangled, burning with thirst on a cold, wet field, surrounded by dead and dying men. And I know I never can. I can't face the thought of it. How could I face the reality? There are times when I wish I had never been born. Life has always seemed such a beautiful thing to me. Now it is a hideous thing. And it is really heartbreaking to see how even in this beautiful idyllic world of Prince Edward Island that even without anything physically happening that their whole landscape has been ruptured by yeah. this. I think I find that pressure really hard to deal with and what I think is really beautiful in some ways is that is not a pressure that comes from the family. Yeah. That that pressure to go yeah it's definitely one of outside forces particularly because like these are going as volunteers there's no yeah. conscription yeah but you see walter then going because of the courage of the women he loves yeah that he says of one of the girl's letters that it makes me feel as if i could go that she says anything about it mm -hmm. but just because of who she is and the goodness he sees in her. And then also when he's going, he says, it is not a hard thing to go 
to protect a country that has daughters like these, like his sister. And so, like we were saying, there's that well of courage that they're drawing from in order to go out and do these great things. Yeah, and even when he does go, he says, you must support me. Yeah. Like, I will need your courage to do this. Yeah. I think it's also really interesting because, like we were saying, Walter's whole character is really centred on this fact that he thinks of life as something beautiful and he can't bear to experience, not in a selfish way, like he is really very genuine about his feeling that he can't think of himself, like we said, killing someone else or seeing the world destroyed in this way. Yeah, and I think in some ways he just has a much more vivid picture of what it means to go to war than his older brother does. But then... What part of what was heartbreaking for me was the knowledge that even that vivid picture was nothing compared to the horror that it really would be. Yeah, that no one could have ever prepared for how grotesque it was. Because it's nothing like the wars that came before. Exactly. But that even, like you said, when Jem wrote home to say, it was one way and now I realise it's another. Yeah. But that, that doesn't deter him. I have the quote here, but it's funny how, even though they, they have such different approaches, that there's a kind of bravado or like a sense of duty or there's a sense of adventure in one person they are both because they come from the same family they have this well of connection of what their worlds are and what their values are and what they grew up with and what they were taught that in some ways they are still very similar at their core so he says they don't realize yet what it is has broken loose i didn't when i first joined up i thought it was fun well it isn't But I'm in the right place, all right. Make no mistake about that. When I saw what had been done here to homes and gardens and people, well, Dad, I seemed to see a gang of Huns marching through Rainbow Valley and the Glen and the garden at Ingleside. There were gardens over here, beautiful gardens with the beauty of centuries. And what are they now? Mangled, desecrated things. We are fighting to make those dear old places where we had played as children safe for other boys and girls fighting for the preservation and safety of all sweet, wholesome things. There's that ability to empathise with the world that just because my plot of land isn't currently at risk, that other people's gardens and memories and families weren't worth fighting for. Yeah, like Walter says, there were Belgian girls as sweet as you. Yeah, there's that real sense of connectedness throughout the world. And obviously, there's a demonization of the German army. And you get that really in the book. Certainly, their housekeeper, Susan, just (laughs) thinks of all of the Germans as sort of literal devils in some ways. But particularly, Walter has a real ability to humanize them and still say that fighting is, is the right thing to do at this moment. And that even from their own perspective, that it always makes you better to do the right thing yeah even if it means giving up all of the things that you love Rilla when when she's talking to one of her brothers as he's going she says we won't be happy in the same way said Rilla and then he replies no not in the same way nobody whom this war has touched will ever be happy again in quite the same way but it will be a better happiness I think little sister a happiness we've earned we were very happy before the war weren't we With a home like Ingleside and a father and mother like ours, we couldn't help being happy. But that happiness was a gift from life and love. It wasn't really ours. Life could take it back at any time. It can never take away the happiness we win for ourselves in the way of duty. And that really ties with what Anne said about finding duty a friend. There is a real inner peace and joy that comes from doing the right thing. Yeah, I think Walter also says that there's a smallness and shrinking in my soul until I go. Yeah. That the reluctance to do the right thing is in itself 
eating away at him. Mm-hmm. And yeah, to a certain sense, he does get that peace back. He says he can, he is himself again. He can look at himself without shame because he has done now what he believes to be the right thing. Yeah, the quote is, I'm going for my own sake to save my soul alive. It will shrink into something small and mean and lifeless if I don't go. That would be worse than blindness or mutilation or any of the things feared. I think that's also what Gilbert says to Anne yeah. when she's crying that Jen is leaving. Would you have him so mean and small-hearted that he doesn't go when he feels it's his duty? That they are proud of him for going to do his duty. And for being the type of person who will go and do his duty. And I think that really ties it in with with Rilla. So I think in terms of the family, we'll finish on Rilla because obviously she's the most important. And she really learns that lesson. And it is really heartbreaking. There is this repeated refrain of how she loses her whole youth to this agony of war and you know sort of anxiously waiting for news and anxiously waiting for it to be over and she's speaking to her friend Miss Oliver and she says oh Miss Oliver what would it be like to not wake up in the morning feeling afraid of the news that the day would bring I can't picture such a state of things somehow and two years ago this morning I woke wondering what delightful gift the new day would give me these are two years I thought would be filled with fun would you exchange them now for two years filled with fun no said Rilla slowly I wouldn't. It's strange, isn't it? They have been two terrible years, and yet I have a queer feeling of thankfulness for them, as if they had brought me something very precious with all their pain. I wouldn't want to go back and be the girl I was two years ago, not even if I could. Not that I think I've made any wonderful progress, but I'm not quite the selfish, frivolous little doll I was then. I suppose I had a soul then, Miss Oliver, but I didn't know it. I know it now, and it is worth a great deal." worth all the suffering of the past two years. And still, Rilla gave an apologetic laugh, I don't want to suffer any more, not even for the sake of more soul growth. At the end of two more years, I might look back and be thankful for the development they had brought me to, but I don't want it now. We never do, said Miss Oliver. That is why we are not left to choose our own means and measure of development, I suppose. No matter how much we value what lessons have brought us, we don't want to go on with the bitter schooling. I just think... I think that's so interesting and relevant for our lives that, you know, it's the title of the C.S. Lewis book, The Problem of Pain, and it's not to diminish anyone's suffering. And like she says, she doesn't want any more suffering. Of course people don't want suffering. And as a reader, if you you know your history, you're also in the middle of heartbreak reading that because you know that not only is it not over, she's only just about halfway through the war at that point. Yeah, those two years that she speaks of. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I might look back and you're like, you will look back. (laughs) Yeah. That it's not that that suffering is like a happy thing, but that we cannot even begin to conceive of how we are being shaped and moulded in the likeness of God through that suffering. And she has, I think possibly my favourite quote in it, she has a moment when she learns some really terrible news and she says, I cannot bear it. And then came the awful thought that perhaps she could bear it and there might be years of this hideous suffering before her. That sends shivers down my spine. Yeah, there is that sense that not only can she go on, but she must go on. Yeah, and we were also talking a little bit about how that means it's the virtuous who suffer more, in Mm -hmm. a way, in that you see in the book there's certain characters who don't let their children go, who hold their sons back or hold their sweethearts back. And 
And even just on a more superficial note, but people who keep their feelings at a more surface level. Yeah. There's great shows of emotion, but they don't necessarily contemplate the extent of suffering that others might be going through, or they kind of make it all about them in a dramatic way. But that this quiet resignation to do the right thing and to suffer through it. Yeah, and I think but that in some ways leads to more suffering, mm-hmm. in that the quiet resignation also means that resignation of allowing yourself to be misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Particularly there's a moment where Rula refuses to defend herself because to defend herself would be to dishonour her brother because the argument is about something that was said about her brother. Mm-hmm. And that kind of allowing people to turn against you for the sake of what you believe to be right. Yeah. Or allowing people to think less of you in order to do your duty and do it well and to support those you love. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a lot of scenes where she doesn't let herself cry publicly because she knows that that would make her mother more upset than she already is. Or even she won't let herself cry for a week because then her eyes might show it in the morning and there will be time for crying when he's gone. Yeah. And that she has to make these choices to sacrifice her own very true feelings. And there's a couple of characters who look at her and go, oh, if only I could take things as lightly as Rilla takes things. And it's so, like you said, that sense of being misunderstood. And you're like, no, I'm feeling this more than you could ever imagine. But that it's not about one man upping someone on how much suffering you're going through or how much you are feeling something. That you're actually looking at the people around you and trying to do the most considerate thing at that moment. We were, I feel like this is an episode where we've been referencing so many other (laughs) podcasts. But there is a really fantastic episode of Catholic Stuff You Should Know. It's called Courage and Subordination. It's a great episode. I really recommend it. Really good. And essentially, Father Michael O'Loughlin is talking about a particular book called The Gates of Fire, which is about the story of the 300 Spartan soldiers who hold out against the Persian army. And, and- it's also apparently quite a bloody one. Yes. And they're just talking about, again, it's talking about courage and how courage comes from the home front and often comes from women. Yeah, they have a beautiful piece on the courage of women. And because they're talking about how the King Leonidas chose the 300 to go, and he essentially says, I chose them not based on their own merits, but based on the merits of their women. And he says, I will never tell the city why I appointed these 300. I will never tell the 300 themselves. I now tell you, I chose them not for their own valour, lady, but for that of their women. Greece stands now upon her most perilous hour, If she saves herself, it will not be at the gates. Death alone awaits us and our allies there. But later, in battles yet to come by land and sea, then Greece, if the gods will it, will preserve herself. Do you understand this, lady? Well, now listen. When the battle is over, when the three hundred have gone down to death, then all Greece will look to the Spartans to see how they bear it. But who, lady, will the Spartans look to? To you to you and the other wives and mothers and sisters and daughters of the fallen. If they behold your hearts riven and broken with grief, they too will break, and Greece will break with them. But if you bear up dry-eyed, not alone enduring your loss, but seizing it with contempt for its agony and embracing it as the honour that is in truth, then Sparta will stand. Why have I nominated you, lady, to bear up beneath this most terrible of trials, you and your sisters of the three hundred, because you can. From my lips sprang these words, reproving the king. And is this the reward of women's virtue, Leonidas? To be afflicted twice over and bear a double grief. And I, I just think that's 
so hard for us to hear because we want it to be transactional. We want to live in a world where you say, I lived a good life, I did all of these things, I've served at my church, I live by the commandments, I do all of these things. In exchange, give me a happy life. And it does say that God wants to give us life and life to the full, but I think he's talking more about that inner peace that we were mentioning with Walter of having done the right thing. And also that that joy which is not happiness. Exactly. And so we're not guaranteed a happy life. We're not guaranteed a life that goes our way. In some ways, like you said, it's almost that the more virtuous you are, that there's a higher calling. In our Bible study group that we're in together, we were just listening to Bishop Barron's talk on sloth, and we were talking about sloth and what it means as a sin. But there's a quote from Joseph Pieper where he says that it's a rejection of the higher calling that you're called to, that you don't want to do the thing that God has asked you to do because it's too hard. Yeah, and that really reminds me of a C.S. Lewis quote, actually, from the end of The Horse and His Boy, where he says he had not yet learned that the reward of a duty done well was to get another harder duty. Mm. Actually, that's so funny because it reminded me of a, a C.S. Lewis <laughs> quote. There's a quote from, I think it's called The Last Night. He says, In Gethsemane, the holiest of all petitioners prayed three times that a certain cup might pass from him. It did not. Yeah, that's such a powerful passage of C.S. Lewis's, actually, mm-hmm. where he talks about prayer and the effectiveness of prayer. And that just because you're good doesn't mean you're exempt from suffering. Mm. And it is honestly one of the hardest lessons any of us will ever try to learn. Yeah. Because we have this sense of justice, there is that part of you that says, I want my reward now. You're like the prodigal son. Like, I want my reward now. Give it to me now. And that's not actually what we're being called to. Yeah, and that actually what we're being called to is a great reward, but not necessarily in this life. Yes. Um, Like we are called to give up our lives. And whether that's to give them up on a daily grind or the full reach of it is martyrdom, which is the highest calling of the Christian life. You also see how much of a bizarre the idea that is. Like in Sparta, their highest ideal is the nation, but this is our highest ideal. And it's the God who came down, and like we said from that Fulton Sheen quote, allowed himself to embrace suffering and so calls us to do the same. Yeah, and I think also very powerfully to unite our suffering to his, that we're not called to suffer alone. I think that's one of the things we also see in Relit, that they're not, even though they are kind of keeping their stiff upper lip and trying not to show their emotions too much for the sake of each other, they are still also supporting each other in bearing it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not a question about doing this alone or never showing emotion or shutting off emotion. That, like, in some ways they are capable of doing this through virtue because they have the strength of the family around them and the support and the genuine love and in some ways an unspoken love. Like, it doesn't need to be explained. Like, they know their parents love them. They know their siblings love each other that they have this innate sense that they are being supported and loved through all of these difficult things. Yeah, which also pushes it to that quote of courages every virtue pushed to its testing point. Yeah, I love that that concept. And it's so heartbreaking to think of it in context of what these these boys were being being sent out and what was being asked of the women because they're being asked to give up not only the present people that they love in their lives but their future with them as well. So This is a quote from someone who has gotten bad news about her sweetheart and says, and she's accused, you haven't lost either a husband or a son. Mm. So why are you being so emotional about this? No, it's true that I haven't lost a husband. 
I have only lost the man who would have been my husband. If I have lost no son, only the sons and daughters who might have been born to me, who will never be born to me now. And that really reminds me of, I mentioned her earlier, Vera Britton, but she wrote a poem called The Superfluous Woman. It's quite a short poem, but it it says, But who will seek me at nightfall? Light fading where the chimneys cut the sky, footsteps that pass nor tarry at my door, and far away, behind the row of crosses, shadows black, stretch out long arms before the smouldering sun. But who will give me my children? there's that sense it literally comes down to numbers so many men died in it that it's funny you see it cropping up in literature there's this whole kind of spate of characters who are this spinster ants there just weren't enough men anymore like whether that you had a sweetheart when they went out to the war or not by the time everyone comes back there's this huge disparity and so it's actually the same thing you see in Jane Austen a hundred years earlier yeah to a certain extent that you lose out on this hope for the future and so I just think it's such a great book to highlight a part of the war that doesn't necessarily get seen as being courageous or seen for the sacrifice that that it made and I think another really heartbreaking part of it is they're talking about this new world that they're trying to make Mm-hmm. for the children of tomorrow yeah but we're reading that knowing that another war will go into the making of that world yeah and that it's just on the horizon and there's actually a really powerful quote and i think it's a lovely thing to think of especially from a catholic point of view when we think of like we said in the last episode the communion of saints like this host of people that are behind us in everything that we're doing but the quote is from one of the boys at the front it's the fate of mankind That is what we're fighting for, and we shall win. Never for a moment doubt that. For it isn't only the living who are fighting. The dead are fighting too. Such an army cannot be defeated. Yeah, or there's a toast near the end that says, Let us drink to the silent army, to the boys who followed when the piper summoned. For our tomorrow they gave their today. Theirs is the victory. Yeah, it's beautiful that, like... The only thing that can possibly make sense of such a horrific part of our history is this hope in the next life. That, like we said, that there isn't a justice in this world, but there is a justice in the next world, and there is a mercy in the next world, and that there's hope in the next world, that we have more than just this life and as beautiful as it is like we saw with the quotes from Walter and from Jem about the beauty of the world that they've come from that it's not the final word in beauty yeah that there has to be a willingness to fight for that beauty and to be willing to sacrifice that beauty for a greater good yeah and just kind of on that note just looking at how the different people go to war there's a quote so he went not radiantly as to a high adventure not in a white flame of sacrifice, but in a cool, business-like mood, as one doing something rather dirty and disagreeable that had just got to be done. That it just comes down to doing the right thing. And there's, like it said, suggested that there are different spirits that can take us in that direction. There is that sense of high spirit, and that's a good thing, an adventure. And there's that sense of fervent sacrifice. But at the bottom line, it is just doing the right thing all the time even when it's the hardest thing in the world. That's our reflections on Rilla of Ingleside. Like we said, it's a, it's a great book. And obviously the season in November is a great time to reflect on the sacrifices of the people before us that allow us to have the lives that we have now, whether that's through war or just through 
the mundanity of life, that laying down your life for, for a greater cause. For the yeah, next... I mean, I think we can all look back at our lives and see the sacrifices of others mm-hmm. that put us where we are. Yeah, and that, you know, these stories of war maybe play them out on a grander or more epic scale, but all of the sacrifices of our families and, and the friends around us and the people around us to lay down their lives for the betterment of the people that they love is... I mean, that's the drama of heaven. Like, that is the story of our God. And so every time it's kind of replicated in in small ways, we are reliving that great drama of what God did for us. And I think we'll wrap it up there. I mean, I think we used maybe half our quotes or less. I know. There's so much more we could talk about. I just think it's, it's a fascinating topic. But hopefully that was a helpful reflection on... A different perspective. Like we said, in some ways, really, it's such a different perspective on the war. It's not in continental Europe. It's in Canada. It's not in the trenches. It's on the home front. It's not from men's perspective. It's mainly from women's perspective. Yeah, but you still get a lot of bits of everything, I think. Yeah, no, it's definitely very mixed. But it definitely takes a route into this part of history that isn't necessarily overtrod at this point. So, yeah, I really recommend it. And like any Lucy Moore Montgomery book, it's a very good creation of worlds as well. Yeah, definitely. So this was our little tribute to uh, all of those Anne of Green Gables fans out there. There's clearly plenty more than just us. Thankfully. We're very glad to be among your ranks. Um, I'm glad you joined us. (laughs) I know, finally. A bit late to the game, but we'll get there. I guess our last question then is to Phoebe, tell us what you're enjoying at the moment. Well, I've really been enjoying that hardcore history podcast. I cannot believe that's the sentence you just said. (laughs) I know. And I've just finished reading the Screwtape Letters. Excellent, yes. It's been a lot of fun. It's a C.S. Lewis book. From an older devil to a younger devil on advice on tempting his subject. Yeah, and anyone who's been listening to this podcast long enough knows that at one point at least the podcast almost became an audiobook for the <laughs> just taking different chunks out of order. Like if you cut them together, you'd get the whole book. But yeah, I love the screw tape letters. So good. And I guess I'm going to cheat slightly and say I'm, it's not something I'm enjoying at the moment. But given that the, the topic that we were talking about, I thought I'd just give it a bit of a shout out to. There was a documentary that came out last year from Peter Jackson, and I think it's it's very fitting. I think people who find this era fascinating, the era of World War One, have this connection with the stories of Lord of the Rings and C.S. Lewis, like we were saying. But there's so many of those quotes. I don't. I, listeners might have picked up on it, but there's a lot of quotes in Rilla Vingleside that really remind me of Lord of the Rings, and I don't think that's a coincidence. But Peter Jackson came out with a documentary called "They Shall Not Grow Old," which took footage which was filmed during World War One, and they kind of cleaned it up in a lot of ways. A lot of that old footage is played back at a very sped up rate. Uh, People talk about the colorization that he also did, which was amazing. It was amazing. But there's something about seeing it slowed down to a normal human experience that slowed down, colorized, with added sound. Yeah, it was so good. They did like a voiceover of what the people would probably have been saying. Yeah. Just in kind of like... Snippets. snippets. And they had, yeah, it was really good. You couldn't see any of the external mechanisms. The only things that you saw were the old footage, like we said, that had been cleaned up. And then there was also some voiceovers of people who had been interviewed about their experiences in World War One. But it was a really, really fascinating movie. And as someone who loves the Lord of the Rings movies, it's no small praise when I say that it might be some of the best work that Peter Jackson has ever done. It's a truly great documentary and I'd really recommend it. What's its name again? They Shall Not Grow Old. 
I always forget that one. (laughs) So that is our podcast. As always, we would love it if you shared the podcast, shared it with your friends on social media, reach out to us on social media, let us know you're listening. If you want to give us any podcast topic ideas you might like to hear us talk about. We're getting ready for 2020. So if you have any particular suggestions that you think would be interesting for us to talk about, please send us. I mean, you might just give us a whole bunch of new reading to do. (laughs) That's all right. We've got the Christmas break coming up. You can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Seeking Watson, also on Instagram. You can also follow our Instagram, which is just Risking Enchantment Podcast. And also you can reach out to us on my website. There's a little form you can fill out there, which sends me an email. So that's rachelsherlock.com and you can you can find all of our information there but other than that have a wonderful month and we're heading into advent so hopefully we'll all have a prayerful and reflective advent and we'll be talking to you guys again soon goodbye goodbye this has been risking enchantment music by kevin mcleod You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.